So we're in 1 John, and we're uh, in 1 John 2, and you heard Eric talk quite a bit about uh, the first part of 1 John, and just to refresh your memory about some of the things that John is writing about. Um, there's uh, Gnosticism didn't exist in its full form yet, but there was a lot of pre-Gnostic ideas which you could just say we're brainiacs and know what you're supposed to think and we're telling you how to think it. So a lot of the arguments that are in 1 John are addressing those people. And as we get further along in 1 John, you're going to see that they eventually leave because the people held to the truth. And there's some strong names that are given to them as well. One of them is, you know, there's people that are Antichrist, which they are denying who Christ is. All right. And you'll get that in chapter four. Um, But you're going to get some of that today. And but the title of uh, tonight's message is, Do You Know? Now, as you start to think of just those few things, um, you know, Eric this weekend talked about Facebook, right? Who shut Facebook off because of the sermon? One, one person. No, one. Okay. But if you think about Facebook, you have friends and acquaintances, don't you? And some of us have them from all the way from high school. I have some guys in the army and I have some guys like, I don't remember who you are, um, but everybody else does. But do you really know them? Do you? You might have grown up, for some of us, three decades ago with them. But do you really know them? Whereas you have close friends that might be here where you, you can pretty much know what they're going to say when they begin a sentence. You live life with them. You're in agreement with the truth with them. And those types of things. Now, we don't call people friends and acquaintances that they say one thing out of this side of their mouth and they do something out of this side of their mouth. We don't, we don't call them close. Well, some of us have close family like that, so I won't use that illustration. They're not close in relationship if they hate everything that you say. You know, there's, there's, a, there's something relationally that's there. Now... My favorite thing is popular Christian teachers, of which I'm not one, as we have already ascertained. But a lot of people like to say, well, you don't know them. And you're like, they pretty much said that Jesus was created. He wasn't the son of God. You know, it's, it's, they say something contrary to scripture particularly, but yet they're saying they're a believer this way. Well, I don't think you really have to believe that Jesus died for your sins to go to heaven. But I'm a Christian. You know, and and is that we, we have to look at those things. Now, John, we know, wasn't messing around with social media back in the first century, was he? I don't think they had, you know, graffiti boards um, and those types of things, nor did they have computers. You know, they did have problems with teachers that were affecting the churches that are there. And this is some of the things that he's addressing. So we're going to start in uh, verse 3, but let us pray first, because I need it. Father, we uh, do come before you, and it's not anything in, uh, of our own self and our, uh, what we consider even our own knowledge, but it is, uh, as Paul said, that we come with the power of the Spirit of what the gospel says is that you're the one that's given this to us, is that we didn't make it up. It's not written on the back of a napkin, but that you inspired holy men by your spirit to give you the words that you wanted us to have. And so we just ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to the hearts of all that are here, 
Uh, please help me uh, to remember the things that I had prepared for, that your word says. And above all, may uh, the Spirit just transform us into the image of Christ and the various aspects that we talk about tonight. We just ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, he left off in verse 2, so we'll start in verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You know, John's not the only one that wrote about this hypocritical nature that people within the church were bringing. Because if you remember the book of James, he said what? Faith without works is dead. And this is sort of along the same lines. And and I want you to look back into chapter 1 because there's a lot of he who says or if we say that brings the contrast to what is actually what the truth is. So look in verse 6 of chapter 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Drop down two verses to verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John's already started out in chapter 1 of giving these thesis statements that these people do not possess the truth. And he's going to continue, but he changes from the said part to knowing, which we know is a relational aspect. It's experiential because of proximity and time spent with somebody. It's not just a few simple faith facts up in your mind, but a relationship. So look what it says in verse 4 of chapter 2. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He who says, I know him, does not know him. Keep his commandments, and, and by no means the, the $5 word is antinomian, A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-A-N, if you want to write it down for your notes. Anyways, what it means is against the law, okay? It's not saying that we're against the law because we're not, uh, because of his commandments, because we're going to get into what that was, but it was basically saying, I do not have to follow what Jesus says. I do not have to obey what he says. So he's a liar. I really don't encourage you to go around calling people liars. It, it really hinders any type of dialogue. But at the same time, is we can't coat, candy coat everything. He doesn't know what the truth is. But look at the contrast of what we know. Verse 3, now by this we know that we know him. There's not a doubt that we know who Jesus Christ is because what matches our life? We keep his 
commandments. It goes on to say, but whoever keeps his word in verse 5, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Verse 6 gives farther action. It says, he who says he abides or resides or exists in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Some of you will remember the statement, you can't just talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. You know, I take pride of my little sayings. So running men's ministry for some years, I caught quite a few of them that were really good. You can't fake the funk. You can't. Because you can look like a Christian, you can talk like a Christian, you can come here. But if you don't know him, it's going to be evident in your life. And that's something to be concerned about as well. Look, flip over to John 14. Verse 15, simple one. Jesus is going to introduce the Holy Spirit, but he makes this one statement. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. The proof, the reality of the relationship, of knowing him, of loving Jesus, is keeping his commandments. Now, I don't want you to think of all the, what is it, 532 ones in the Old Testament? Because we're going to cover what Christ has said is the commandments. But of keeping those things as a reality of our relationship and knowing who Jesus is. And not only just knowing, but of abiding with him. In John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Is that there's a relationship with Christ of knowing him above all. And then walk as he walked. Boots on the ground. It's easy to say, oh, I know about that. And you'll talk all about it and all this, and that might be a place. And, and then your friend will say, well, have you ever been there? You know, we're, we're going to be going to Detroit in uh, June, Joe. And before the first time we went, I said, oh, I know about Detroit. You know, there's the great migration because the, the economy closed down, all the cars Car places, stop making cars. Who remembers that? Okay, right? I can talk all of this stuff and have a conversation with Joe. But Joe's from Detroit. Does Joe know Detroit? Yes, he does. I just know about it. It's not a reality. I haven't been there. There's not a proximity. So in these first few verses, to ask yourself and to really ask yourself is, do you know him? By what we read, do you know Jesus? Or do you just say that you do? With all those verses that we read, your life is going to give the answer. So if you don't know and you're confused, continue to pay attention as we go through the rest of this. And it's not some laundry list to say, does my life match up to this? But it is a question to say, do I really know Jesus? Is my life transformed and changed because of him? 
page one. Okay. You guys thought I was joking, didn't you? Does anyone see this is pencil on a steno pad? All right. And for those of you that know me, especially in school of discipleship, I, I type it out, don't I? So. Verses seven and eight. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Do you know love? Because that's the commandments that we're going to look at that he has talked about. And as you're trying to define love in your mind, some of you might be remembering, oh, I was in third grade and I had my first girlfriend. You know, some of you are thinking about pizza, aren't you? Some of you have some definition of love. But you'll recall uh, Bill Cosby in one of his shows, kids say the darndest things. We're not going to have a video clip of that. But what we are is Samaritan's Purse, a great agency um, that helps in uh, crisis and disaster, has put together what kids defined as love. So watch this very short video. Love is like over a gillion stuff. Helping someone even if you don't want to. When your parents or your teachers don't tell you to. Giving away stuff that you really, really like. If they want a toy, I'll share. Sale. Toys. It's smiling and saying good things about them. I should say, you have very nice clothes on. I hope my mommy. I played with another person on the playground when she didn't have anybody to play with. And people are loving to me. I feel like I should do it to someone else. Because Jesus is the same for us. It's like your daughter says you will have him do to you. That you should treat the other one just like I've been treated before. Not like bad, but the times I've been good treated. Nobody really wants to play with somebody who's been mean. Being kind is helping those in need. Give them some food. Get fish and bread and green beans and peas and apples. I'll ask my mom and or dad, can we go get food for this hungry person that I found? Um, love is <laughs> hugging your mom and helping her wash the dishes. I just get the water thing and just spray them. People show me love by holding my hand. And they also give me a kiss from the head when I'm asleep very lightly. There's people that don't get love in other places of the world. You help them. Just help people. If we show people love, they can spread it all around the world. Okay, come here, Mommy. <laughs> I'll show her something. I'll show you something. Come here, Mommy. So as you see of what those, even those kids said is they realize that action goes with the word, doesn't it? 
And as you read through this short passage, I don't know if it happened to any of you. John's like, oh, I'm not writing you a new commandment. I'm telling you an old commandment. Wait, I am going to tell you a new commandment. And you're like, what is he saying? Well, the old commandment that is likely that he's referencing is not changed, which is Leviticus 19, 18, about taking care of your neighbor. And that still hasn't changed. You know, and even Jesus that, that talked about the golden rule is what we call it is um, to love others and to treat them of how you want to be treated. Don't wait for them to treat you. Is to be active and to treat them that way. But then he calls it a new commandment. Not that it's different, but it's one that's refreshing. So John 13, verse 34, talks about this of what Jesus has said. Has said. He says a new commandment. Well, that's pretty clear. New commandment, new commandment. I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. So not new that it's made up out of thin air or something innovative, but the fact of, of Jesus cleaning off the things that are old to say what is new. In fact, he even illustrated how to do this. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, everybody remembers the blesseds at the front part, right? In the first part of chapter 5 and and then, then it goes into, you've heard it said, and Jesus gives all the correction. This is what it actually means, right? And then at the end of chapter 5 there, in, in around verse 43, he starts to talk about loving other people. And if you noticed in that conversation, if a Roman centurion asks you to carry his gear, don't carry it one mile, carry it two. Okay? If you just invite your friends over all the time, does that really show that you love other people? And it finishes with, therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So this idea of love is, is what John is asking if they actually know what it is, of what these commandments are. Do you know the love of God so that it pours out upon others? Or are you selfish with your salvation? Nope. Jesus saved me. That's good. I'm not talking to anybody. Nope. Not going to love them. Not going to let them get in front of me in the grocery line. Nothing. All right? No. The reality of that love is what came out. And then it ends with verse 9 of talking about he who, or about, and the, and the end of verse 8 gives the reason why this commandment of love is so important. He says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. There's, there's a connection between love and he transitions to this next verse of light. It's such an odd transition because he, he really focuses on it as we move into this next point. But still focusing on what what. Christ said about love, John 15, 13, talks about you laying your life down for your friends. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay his life down for his friends. Oh, and our ultimate display of love is John three sixteen, isn't it? For God so loved the world. 
pretty sure that's everybody that's in here that he gave. Action that goes with it. In verses 9 to 11, it's do you know the light? So do, we, do you know Jesus? Do you know love? Do you know the light? Verse 9 through 11 says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So we're going to do a practical thing while I tell this story. So if security is listening, nothing's wrong. So um, they're going to dim the lights a little bit or a lot. So a long, long time ago in a far, far, far place away, I was going through French commando school. (laughs) And part of that French commando school is they had this evolution that was survival, escape, resistance, and evasion. And they had created in this world, this warehouse, this huge tunnel system with who knows what, tubes, broken wall lockers, everything kicked out. And that was as black as black as I have been in any place. You could not see anything. Now, once somebody had any semblance of light, is that you can see it from wherever you're at in the sanctuary. And the situation that I was in, just the the smallest piece would illuminate enough to go on. Unfortunately, I didn't have any. All right, thanks, guys. And some of you are recalling our harvest gathering, right? And so the kids might be scared because it's that dark in there as well. But when the darkness is that great, how much light does it take to dispel it? Very little, doesn't it? And he talks about this light in these verses. But he brings up that statement, he who says... He who says he's in the light. But his activity shows that he hates his brother. And in those two verses, it goes on to describe it. Not only is he in the darkness, but in verse 11, is he's walking in the darkness. Now, it wasn't too dark in, the, in here when they turned the lights off. So just imagine, Will, will you, is that you, you go home. And, and you go into wherever, there's no windows in that room, and, and you shut the lights off, and it's chock full of furniture. And right now, you're trying to remember, how am I going to walk across the room? First of all is, why would you willingly do that? But that's what the illustration is, is that they're willingly living that life. Imagine your whole house is dark, no windows or heavy curtains, and you're trying to live in your house. Does it make sense to anybody? It doesn't. You're like, well, why don't you turn the light on? Why don't you get a flashlight so you can at least see? But the rejection of the light causes them to hate their brother, to live in the darkness, to walk in the darkness. They're aimlessly wandering. Look, at it says, does not know where he's going. 
because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Scary thought to never be able to see again because of the pursuit of selfish pleasure. But in verse 10, the contrast is given. He who loves his brother lives, resides, abides in the light. That's where his house is built. For those of you that might have worked mid-shift, whether you're emergency services or nurses or whatever, right? Some of you probably put tinfoil over the windows, didn't you? Or you hung heavy blankets up or whatever it might be. And you might be some other type of shift worker. And you know what? If there was a millimeter that wasn't covered, you couldn't go to sleep. Because you're trying to sleep during the daytime and you wanted it to be that dark. Imagine as you, as you, you ponder Revelation chapter 22. Remember? New heaven, new earth, new city. There's no temple. Jesus is there. Is there a sun? You didn't know it was going to be Bible trivia, did you? For 500, Alex, Bible trivia, is there a sun in Revelation 22? No. Is there a moon? No, because the light is who? Jesus Christ. There's a lot of bright lights right here. Luckily, we'll be transformed to be able to live there. But just imagine, no darkness whatsoever. But also notice that a a bigger point for application for us to consider is the last half of that verse in verse 10. Because we like talking about abiding in the light, don't we? But it says what? There is no cause for stumbling. That word means a trap. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, I love Jesus. I know him. I know his love. I want to abide in the light. But does my actions cause somebody to stumble? And they talked about this. Paul even wrote about it. Now, those of you that are vegan, I do love you. (laughs) But that's the issue that they were talking about, is that there were people saying, well, you have to be vegan to be a good Christian. Pretty sure Jesus ate fish. But that's in Romans 14, that's what they're arguing about. And those types of things. You know, is, is to, look, to look at myself, is there anything that is not the truth that causes other people to stumble? For those of you that don't like beards, I'll pray for you because it ain't getting cut off. I'll just get you a walker when you stumble. But those are the type of things that, you, that we have to look. So, you know, whether, whether it's how, whatever manner that it causes people to stumble. Blameless, such a hard word. Verses 12 through 14 is very interesting. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. 
And this last point is, is, do you know the truth? Do you know the truth? Now, for those of us that had wonderful teenagers that have grown up, is that there, that driving test came one day, didn't it? Right? And there's two parts. You had the written exam, and you had the what? Driver's test. All right. Time for confession. Back, way back in the day, who failed your parallel parking test? No, oh, come on. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Neil. All right. Is that they had the written test, and your kids might have even have aced it, right? But then they get behind that wheel with that driver, uh, uh, what is it called? Dri- the instructor or whatever, he's going to evaluate, right? You know he had that plastic pocket protector. Right? And they forget where the blinker's at. They're, they're looking this way and, and driving the other way. Knowing the truth is far beyond being able to recite things. Because if you can't use it, it's what? It's taking up space. And some of us need more space up there right now. And John is talking to three different groups of people, but what is contained within each of those admonitions is what the truth is, some core fundamental things that they need to continue to hold on to and to know. First of all, to address these three groups, he calls them children, fathers, and young men. Okay? Now, moms, I know you're getting angry right now, but bear with me. Is that what was, you know, there's one commentary I read, and he wrote like three pages on who children, there's four different views on this, okay? So, just to simply put, I won't put you to sleep, it's likely that children is talking about the whole church that is there, okay? And it's likely that the fathers are the ones that are leading the church, and I'll, and I'll show you why that I come to these deductions. And the young men are the up-and-coming leaders that are going to replace the next generation as well, but if we look at what he has talked about and told them to reflect upon as they go through this, and so of, of do you know the truth, do you know forgiveness? He says it in verse 12, because your sins are forgiven for your name's sake. Mark 10, verse 15, talks about children. And it'll be a familiar verse to many of you. You know, Jesus, uh, they bring the little children. You know, uh, the disciples are, uh, you know, huffy and puffy and rebuked them that because they brought kids. I guess it wasn't VBS time. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. You just got to wonder if there's additional conversations that Jesus had with the disciples. Like, come on, guys, what are you doing? We're supposed to be loving people, and you're kicking them out. Yeah, that's not the word of God. That was just ad lib. Um, but he says, Jesus says, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, 
Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. There's a mentality that comes with children, and it's one of what? Trust. Trust. And John gives this admonition in this passage that they know they're forgiven and they know the Father. And why is that something that all of us need to grasp? Because you're not going to pay five bucks to get in the pearly gate when St. Peter's standing there. And that might sound amusing, but what's scary is there might be people here that are thinking, I can be good enough to get to heaven. Sorry. Isaiah wrote about that, and it's like filthy rags and stuff. If you get what you deserve, according to Romans, wages of sin is death. I'll choose the gift every time. With the fathers, knowing God, notice what he says, because you have known him who is from the beginning, and then later on he says the same thing, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Turn to Matthew 14, 33, and it's likely even being more defined from God to Jesus Christ, that this is the end of the first generation of people that helped establish the church with the apostles and with the disciples. But look at these professions that are given. Matthew 14, 33 is that Jesus walks on the water and, the, and he comes into the boat and then he calms the waves and tells him, hey, it's me. Peter steps out, looks at the wave, sinks, right? And gets back in the boat. Look at verse 33. Is that when they get in the boat, the wind ceases. It says, then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is not some light, light statement. This is a reality that he was not a Son of God, like an angel, but that he was the Son of God that came. Just look over on probably the next page or so on chapter 16, verse 16, when, G, when Peter is asked about what's the what's the talk of the town in Caesarea Philippi area and he says oh some think you're John the Baptist some Elijah or Jeremiah but he asks Peter clearly who am I he says you are the Christ and the Messiah which is who the Jewish people were looking forward to the son of the living God so with these fathers it's likely that they had experienced the reality of Christ. That they had possibly seen him, they had known him all the way from the beginning. With the young men, notice what it says about them. You've overcome the wicked one. And then in the latter part of 14, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. With these younger men is that there was more of an intent of what they were doing with their life. And it seems so difficult at times, doesn't it? Not that we're afraid that he's behind every tree because we can blame our flesh enough, can't we? But in 2 Corinthians 10 is that it does give perspective on what is happening in this world. In verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So our weapons aren't physical, but they come from God. And in Ephesians 6, which is so familiar to us, but just a reminder, it talks about the armor of God. But look at the whole reason behind this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And there's many other places that talks about this spiritual battle. But those young men had come to a conclusion because they said they'd overcome the wicked one. But you you have to understand, when you look at the theology of the entire scripture, Jesus has won. He's won. We're not controlled by them. You read Romans chapter uh, 6, the end of 6, is that you are no longer a slave to sin. Present yourself as members of righteousness. If you're not a believer, you got a chain around your neck. Ephesians chapter 2, it says the God of this world has blinded you. It says that you are a slave to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. It's what it says. It's what God has said. So as we wrap up, as I want you to, to think about that, and, and believers is to think of the joy of knowing Christ. As you contemplate it right now, you should have a smile on your face to think, I know my Savior. I know his Holy Spirit who resides in me. Do I screw up? Oh, yeah, just ask my wife. But just like the children that we are, I know his forgiveness and walk in that. I know his love. And that love becomes a reality to express it to others. I know the light because I don't walk in the darkness, wandering around aimlessly and blinded, but can see the truth that's in here because Jesus is the true light. And I know the truth. Not that I've arrived and don't have to learn anything else, but these core things of knowing what his forgiveness is, of knowing who he is, and of knowing that I belong to him more than anything else. Do you know Or do you just say that you know? Let's stand. We're going to have communion tonight, and I just want you to to contemplate the things, because what is up here is a representation of the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And it's easy to fall into rote things, isn't it? Oh, we do communion every Wednesday night. Oh, we do it once a month, usually the third weekend of the month. All of that. 
But as you, as you look at the elements, as you look at the crackers, do you understand, if you know him, you realize down to the depth of your soul that you were the one that should have been beaten with that scourge. That your body is the one that should have been punished and your body is the one that should have been broken because of our utter rebellion against God. But he took your place. And Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, joy of knowing you, he endured the cross. Think about that. This little cup of grape juice representing the blood that had to be spilled. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And some of you will think of the old hymns. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So as you come forward and, and you take communion of really thinking about knowing Jesus Christ, of knowing his love, knowing the true light, knowing the truth of what the scriptures have told you, of who he is, what he has done, and the relationship that you have with him. If you're in the camp that you just say that you know him, I plead with you to repent. There is no guarantee that you're even going to make it home. And it's easy to get comfortable in this world to say, I got time. March 25th, I didn't have time. The truth of it is, there's probably three nights I thought I was going to die in the hospital. But you know what? A little bit of worship music and prayer. And I know, I know Jesus. However, when I was 15, it took almost dying in a car crash to know Jesus. And I don't want that to happen for you. Let's pray. Father, we, we do come before you in, in utter humility and just, just having our minds blown at how much that you've loved us, especially when we reflect on, on how decrepit and how depraved some of us were, living a selfish life, fighting against all things that were holy and righteous, but you still loved us. And as we take communion, Jesus, we, we reflect on the cost. And there is no way that any of us could even stand up to do that. So with words inexpressible, we love you. Holy Spirit, may you continue to work in our hearts, in our minds, in our hands, in our feet, in our mouth, that we would emulate Christ to others that they would glorify the Father because the reality of that love coming out in good works.